when you have things that are out of your control, um, that are weighing on you and really causing you angst on a daily basis, like your running is not going to be what you want it to be. It can be a great escape. It can be a place you go to find calmness and peace in your heart and your mind, but you're not going to perform at all what you're capable of performing. That's Karen Goucher. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this is episode 27 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Now, my guest hardly needs an introduction. She is one of America's most accomplished and recognizable distance runners. She has competed in two Olympic Games. She was a world championships medalist on the track in 2007. She is one of the main whistleblowers in the ongoing Oregon Project investigation. But beyond all that, she is an inspiration to runners around the world, particularly women and young women. We covered a lot of ground over the course of this 40-minute conversation. I'm not going to spoil any of it for you, but tune in, and I think you'll enjoy it and take a lot away from it. Finally, before we get into things, I'm going on vacation, so this podcast is being put on pause for at least the next two weeks, maybe three, and I'll be returning sometime in mid-September with the next episode. So don't miss me too much, and stay tuned for the next conversation. All right, I think that covers everything. Let's get into it with Kara Goucher. Goucher, welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thanks for having me. So I got a little business item I want to square away before we get into our conversation. In 2011, we raced a half marathon <laughs> against one another in Arizona. It was your first race uh, after giving birth to your son. And I don't think I've seen you on a, well, I've seen you on a start line since then, but not, not against me. So when are we having our rematch? I don't know when you want to do that. That was kind of an unfair advantage for me. I have to say I had a, that was in January, right? That was in January, so I 2011. Had, I think, like, I think you were like, what, seven months, not oh even no, three months, three months, three and a half <laughs> months. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, a deal is a deal. And I thought I could still beat you and I didn't. So I can see that you beat me, but I do think we do need a rematch. We should start looking for, I don't know. I don't know what your fitness level is at right now, but maybe later this fall or next spring. Well, I'm ready anytime. I'm going to build up for CIM in <laughs> December. So I'll be starting a marathon program sometime in September. So this fall would be great. I, I think I should have some pretty decent fitness by then. All right. Well, I mean, I feel like this is a rematch that's happening. So Cool. Uh, well, stay tuned out there in podcast land for the Mario Caragoucher round two. And I will link to some of the, I guess, somewhat t- tongue-in-cheek uh, trash talking that we partook in back in 2010, 2011, uh, leading up to the race for those of you who don't know what we're talking about. Um, but you know, just kind of going back to that one thing I remember, uh, we spent some time together in the days before the race and things were pretty loose and fun and, you know, you were in kind of a good mood. And then I remember like being around you on race morning and it was like a switch had just flipped. You went from like kind of <laughs> happy, happy, bubbly Kara to like, I mean, it was your first race back, uh, in a while, but you were like stone faced and super focused. Um, is that typical for you? Yeah, I think, I think I do flip a switch and it's, it's like go time and it's time to focus, but when I can't crack a smile at all, then usually things don't go my way. So, um, I think that day in particular, there was just like a lot of pressure to, you know, stop the clock. I hadn't raced since world champs, um, 2009. And so it was like just a long time coming, but I mean, I definitely am a little bit different on race day for sure, but maybe not quite so serious as I was that day. Yeah. Do you remember 
what your mindset was like at the time heading into that race? I just didn't know what to expect. And I just, you know, you take such a long time off and you have, I think Colt was probably three and a half months old at that point. Cause he's born at the end of September and you want to prove to everyone that you can still be there. So I think like that race, I felt a lot more pressure than most races I run just kind of trying to prove to the moms out there and prove to my competition that I was still the athlete I was before. So yeah, there's a lot going through my mind that day. Yeah. And fast forwarding through the race, I can't remember what you finished in. I think it was like 116, maybe somewhere around that. Did you feel like it was a weight off of your shoulders to get that first race post-pregnancy under your belt? Yeah, I'm glad that I had that one because then I went um, and ran the New York City half a couple months later mm-hmm. and the pressure had been off of like the first race and that race was significantly better. I think I ran 69 minutes in that race. So I was glad to sort of shake that off and just, it was not a great performance, but considering what my body had been through, it was good. And I just got to check that box of like first race back done. What did you do from that first race back through New York city half? And then you ran Boston was probably what, like a month after New York city half five weeks or something like that. I think you were fifth at Boston that year. What did you do from a, just like mental standpoint. I mean, obviously your training continued to progress and you got fitter and fitter, but how'd you get your confidence back? Yeah, I had, I had a hang up with speed. I was able to run throughout my pregnancy. And so I felt really, really strong and my long runs came back really easily, but my speed was so hard and I would go to the track and I would be like, Oh man, like it's just so hard. I can't break 35 seconds for 200. It's just so hard. And Finally, I just had to like kind of let it go and kind of go for broke. I mean, I remember the day being at Dunaway running 200s and hills with Alberto. And I was like, I'm just going to go for broke in this 200. I mean, if I blow up, who cares? And I ran like 34.9. And that honestly like turned it around. I was like, okay, I'm getting somewhere. And I really had to just focus on myself because like no one else was in the same situation as me. No one else had a baby that was going to be six and a half months old at Boston And so I just had to like quit worrying about what my competitors were doing and really just focus on myself. And at the time, you know, a year earlier, 34.9 would not have been good. But in that moment, I just had to take it and cherish it and kind of use that moving forward. This is actually a good primer, I guess, to talk about your new book, which just came out called Strong and really what it is. um, I got my copy a couple of weeks ago. It's a guide to like boosting confidence and working on the mental side of things as you are training. When did the idea for such a book come about? You know, honestly, I've used sports psychology since I was in high school. Um, I've always had anxiety about racing and negative self chatter. I remember going to a dance therapist when I was in high school where I was supposed to dance away my nerves. And then I was just like, uncomfortable feeling like, oh, I'm not dancing well enough. Now that's giving me anxiety. Um, but it's something I had to really work on. And so I think I've been pretty open with my struggles with that. And the fact that it's a part of my training, I mean, I have a standing appointment every Monday. And so when I talk to groups, you know, people always want to know, how do you not get nervous? And I'm like, I get super, super nervous, but I have these different techniques that I've used over the years that have really worked for me. And I think for me, the keeping a confidence journal has been so helpful, Um, it's a separate journal for my training journal and it's where I have to find something that went right in my running in that day. 
And I've had a lot of bad days and I still have to find something positive. And I was sharing that with a group of women. And then one of them ended up being a publisher. So she actually reached out to me and said, hey, would you ever want to tell these stories and bring these techniques you know, to the general public? And I was like, sure, you have the vehicle to do it. So we started working on it in spring of 2017. Cool. So a little over a year, well, I guess a year and a half now um, yeah. from, I guess, ideation to actual creation. I love this idea of a confidence journal. How long have you kept one for yourself? I've, I've, so most of the techniques in the book are the techniques that I use for the bulk of my career. The confidence journal I started keeping in 2014. And how often do you consult it? I have to write in it every single night. So it's, it's it lays flat with my training journal and, um, I write in my training journal. I mean, even when I'm on a break, I still write like what I did. And then I, and it's just like, that's just habit for me after years and years. And the conference journal is the same way. So every night before I go to bed, I write what I did in my training log. And then I write something positive in my confidence journal. And for me, when I really need the confidence journal is when I'm, you know, a couple days lining up to a big race. And especially the night before when I start to let the chatter get away and I start to worry about other people. And it's just really the best tool I have found for me that focuses everything back on me. And it lets me flip through and see that I've done the work that I fought through negative days and bad days. And that there are all these positive things about myself. And it's kind of just like a hug and a pat on the back, but sometimes that's all you need. Yeah. I think we could all use that at various points of our own running careers. Is it important that it stays separate from your training journal or could they work in concert with one another? I think they could work in concert. I just felt like for me, training is one thing and I didn't want my confidence journal to be talking about how necessarily like every day I write in my training journal and I write what I did and I write my heart rate and I write my pace and I write how I felt. Um, but I wanted my confidence journal to be something separate where it's not about how I felt. It's about when the doubt crept in, when did I push through that? If I did have a really great workout, how did that make me feel when I was driving home? Um, what was it about that day that I was able to push through on this really hard workout and come away with a great day? So for me, they are separate. You know, one is more emotional and one is like the physical. So for me, they're separate, but there's no reason why if you have room in your training long, you couldn't just jot a sentence every day along with your training. Now, in regard to your new book, Strong, I mean, it is, don't take this the wrong way, it's very feminine. Um, here on the cover, it's, <laughs> you know, it's got a pink back to it. Um, you, there's anecdotes in there from other women in running, such as Molly Huddle, um, Emma Coburn, you know, who people would recognize. And, and even on the back, it says, you know, insights from inspiring women in the field of running. Could a guy benefit from reading through this book and taking away some of the strategies that you, you know, that you put forth in it? Absolutely. I think when we first met, I wanted it to be pink because that's my favorite color. And I was envisioning it like with women and, and young and young girls. And so I w wasn't really thinking about males. If I'm being totally honest, everybody that I asked to contribute is female. It has a very female flair. It's all like Kara pictures in the book. But there's no reason why the tools in there can't be applicable to men. And I do think that um, if we do a second edition, we'll probably tame down the femininity a little bit. But the message would be the same regardless if you're male or female. Yeah. And as someone who has flipped through it, I, I wanted you to talk through it yourself. But as someone who has flipped through it, I looked at this and I was like, well, it's, I mean, 
make this blue. And I think a dude would totally be into it. Um, but for those of you out there who, who are listening to this, I think the lessons that are contained therein are certainly applicable to you, whether you're male, whether you're female, whether you're an elite level athlete, whether you're just getting into the, the sport. I think there's just a lot more commonality there than there are differences. So I'd encourage everyone to check it out. Uh, this isn't the only big thing that you know, has been going on for you recently. You also just turned 40. Uh, not to, not, not to. Thanks, Mario. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Happy birthday, by the way. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. Was it, did it cause you any, you know, anxiety or force you to think any differently about yourself or maybe in terms of, you know, your age relative to your running career or anything like that? I think that the last few years I have not feared it, but just felt like I can't believe this is coming. And, you know, I never thought I would still be back in the day. I thought like, Oh, who I will not run when I'm 40. Like, Oh, I would never have masters attached to my name. And in the last few years, I've just enjoyed my running for, um, different reasons outside of competing, but I still have the urge to compete. And so I've definitely changed how I look at aging. I think when I was like 38 and 39 and, um, you're still competing against the people who are in their mid twenties and you're still held to that same standard. It's kind of nice now to actually click that box and say, okay, I still want to compete with these 20 some people, but like I am actually a master. So it's been an evolution. I'm not going to say I was like super psyched about it, but it was a lot easier than I, than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. And in recent years, we've seen athletes, especially marathoners, extend their careers even longer. I mean, on the women's side, Dina Castor, obviously, she's still at it. Um, Meb Kofleski on the men's side, even though he did just officially retire and, and many others. Did those athletes inspire you at all or give you the encouragement to keep going? Yeah, definitely. I think Dina um, is a great example. I mean, Meb was living that lifestyle day in, day out. Um, where Dina kind of like found herself on a good whim of training and went for the um, half marathon record and then really dedicated herself for the Chicago marathon. So when she got the master's record there. So I feel like that's more a path that I would take. Like when my body's feeling good and my running's going good, then I want to go and try to do something. But I don't necessarily, um, can't necessarily do the med thing where I just live that strict lifestyle anymore because my life has just evolved. Mm-hmm. Where are you right now with your running and in terms of your competitiveness in the sport? Um, I have a, a goal for myself this fall. I did take a break after the grandma's half marathon. I, in the spring, um, I set the goal of going six or seven months without getting injured and running 860 to 80 miles a week. So I ran, I averaged about 78 miles a week from January until June and um, just running a long run, a day with fartlek, and then a day with strides. And so really just pure base running. And um, when I got to grandma's though, I, I thought I could run maybe 73 to 75 minutes and I ran my slowest half ever. And I just had been dealing with some other stuff outside of running and it all kind of caught up with me. So I took a little break. And when I say a break, it's like the way we all runners say we take a break, like we still run every day, but We're not like watches are off and we're not worried about mileage and stuff like that. Now I'm kind of itching to get back into it. And I love having my son around, but he goes back to school next week, which is going to make it a lot easier for me to do all the little things like take a nap and make sure I get that extra therapy session and get that double in. So I'm kind of itching to, to train again and kind of get in a training block. Um, 
for three or four months. So that's kind of what I'm hoping to do. Yeah, it almost seems like a natural relaunching point, kind of. Yeah, I'm excited. My I feel good and, and more like most importantly, I just I'm excited to train and I haven't felt that way in a long time. So um, my coaches are like, well, let's take advantage of it, but let's not be dumb. So I'm kind of just building back into it right now with the hopes of training pretty hard come mid-September. Let's go back to grandma's half marathon for a second. You just mentioned how it was your slowest half marathon you've you've ever run and you had other things going on outside of running that may have affected that. We don't have to get into the specifics of that, but on a very general level, how important is it to have those other pieces of your life kind of in order or at least in harmony so that your running can still go well? Like how do those things play with one another? You know, it's been an interesting situation because it, I'm, I always pride myself on being able to compartmentalize stuff. Like I'm putting aside this stress right now because I need to train or I'm, you know, like just, I'm able to put them in their boxes, but this has been a long time stress that was coming to a head. And I, I was convinced that I could just keep them separate. And I did not fly to Minnesota from Colorado. I flew from somewhere else and I was just as a person drained and in a weird way, probably more rested because my running had been affected by everything that was going on, but it just, I just had nothing. And, you know, it was interesting talking to my family afterward, especially my husband, Adam, he's like, I did not want you to run that race, but I was, I knew you'd get mad at me if I told you not to run. And so for me, it's been a really, really big lesson. in like when stuff in your life is really, really stressful even if you just say, I'm, I'm going to be fine. Like when all that stress has been wearing you down, it's out of your control. And the smart thing for me would have been to just back off the mileage and kind of get through that period when it was all coming to a head. But um, instead I tried to be tough and it was, it was a mistake. And so for me, I've just really learned and I would cur- encourage anyone else. Like when you have things that are out of your control, um, that are weighing on you and really causing you angst on a daily basis. Like your running is not going to be what you want it to be. It can be a great escape. It can be a place you go to find calmness and peace in your heart and your mind, but you're not going to perform at all what you're capable of performing. Let's rewind the last, oh, what are we at? Two and a half years now to 2016 Olympic trials. Um, You had a really, I mean, kind of bittersweet race. Like it was a really solid race for you. You competed well, but you finished fourth um, and you missed the team by 105. And then after that, um, you dealt with injuries. You had two knee surgeries and we're just sort of in this, you know, kind of down, I don't know if downward spiral is the right word, but just sort of like injury cycle, um, unable to, to really train and race at the level that you wanted to. What was going on in your head at that time? Were you contemplating like how you're going to get out of your running career? Or were you thinking like, I'm going to get over this and my best, well, maybe not my best days, but I still have good days ahead of me at that point. You know, I, I think the Olympic trials was something that was really, really hard to get over. And I would be lying if I said, I just went home and was like, Hey, I lost to three great people. Like, it's okay. I, it was hard. And I would say that there was some like situational depression because of it. And it really wasn't until the fall of 2016 that I was like, I can't, I can't keep living like this. Like I have to forgive myself for not making it. I, I did all that I physically could do on that day. And, um, 
but of course not making the Olympic team, um, spirals a lot of other things, uh, like financially and, um, we like my family lost our insurance. So it just kind of spirals all these other things that kind of piles it on when you already feel like crap. Mm -hmm. So it just was like a lot to get through. And it was hard to really think about training hard during that time. In the fall of 2016, I kind of started getting back into it. And by um, January, February, 2017, I was feeling good. And I was feeling pretty confident that I could get out there and move myself up on the list to, to qualify uh potentially for the world championship. And then I was told no by a major in the marathon that I wasn't welcome there. And it was kind of like, to be totally honest, it really just like took the wind out of my sails. And I kind of struggled throughout 2017. I never wanted to quit. I never wanted to say like, oh, I'll never do that again. But I just was kind of struggling with like, this is causing me pain, <laughs> you know, like emotional pain. And I want it to be fun again. And I want it to be through, like, I want to be running for all the reasons that I want to be running and I don't want it to be making me sad. And so last fall I got sick and it turns out I'm severely allergic to cats and dogs. And of course we have cats and dogs and that was a big piece of the puzzle. I started treatment for my allergies and that's when I started to feel better really was December of last year. And that's when I said, okay, now I want to just I have goals that I want to achieve, but the last two years have been so up and down that I really just need to build a base. So it was a really long way of saying I've never given up on the goals, but they I've been trying to let go of letting them control my happiness. What are some of those goals? I would like to run sub 230 again. Um, I would like to run faster in the half than I have the last few years. You know, it's I'm I can't worry about placing on a podium for anything at this point, I think in my career anymore, it's more about just getting the best out of myself on that day. So sub two thirty is a really big goal that I still have. Sounds like you and I are on the same page as far as our, our numerical goals. We should make this half marathon happen. It could, it could, <laughs> it could be close yet. <laughs> hey, we're going to take a quick break so I can thank our sponsor for this episode. It is you can, you can powders and bars with super starch give you slow release carbs without the big crash. That's long lasting energy without the sugar spikes and it's easy on the stomach before you head out and run. I can personally vouch for you can as I've used the drink powder to fuel my last few marathons, including Boston just a couple months ago. And it has been an integral part of my pre-race nutrition plan. But don't just take my word for it. Top athletes like Meb, Dathan Ritzenhain, and members of the Zap Fitness Racing Team use it to fuel their training and racing as well. UCAN is ideal for any runner looking to fuel workouts and races without all the sugar of many other sports drinks. There's nothing out there quite like it. So I'd recommend trying a UCAN sample pack for yourself. You'll get one packet of UCAN Super Starch drink mix, one packet of UCAN Protein drink mix, and one UCAN snack bar, all for under five bucks. And that includes free shipping. Check it out today at generationucan.com slash morningshakeout. There's no the, just slash morning shakeout and see what you think. My thanks to UCAN for their support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Let's get back to the show. Um, I remember reading somewhere recently that you have sort of this outside interest in ultra running. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think that's what's been making it a little bit hard for me to commit to like the full-time training for the marathon because... I feel like with the marathon, you have to be really strict in your lifestyle. And 
it's hard at this point in my life to be super strict. I'm hoping to do it this fall, but it's, it's hard. I think when I went, my husband ran trans Rockies and I was like, this is so awesome. Like not that people weren't trained. Don't get me wrong. Not that at all, but it just felt a little different. And it was more about like connecting with your running and connecting with nature. And everyone was like so friendly and just encouraging everyone. And I was like, that was in 2015 that he ran. And I was like, man, I want to be in this club. Like, be with these people. And so that's definitely been on the back of my mind. We moved to a new house um, after the Olympic trials, which is like three blocks down from the mountains. And so I have been doing some mountain running on my own, just like toying with the idea. But this is something that I definitely want to try. And I kind of feel like I want to have a great buildup and put all my cards into a marathon. And if it doesn't go the way I hoped, then I can feel good about exploring this other side of the sport. Yeah. And I think that's a tra- an attraction for a lot of folks who have been in a competitive, say road racing or track scene for a while as you get into this ultra environment, not that it's not competitive, they're certainly competitive in their own way, but it's a much looser environment. Right. And, um, it feels a lot less tense, I guess, than yeah. when you're at the start line of a marathon, like I got to hit these splits. And if I don't hit these splits, I'm not going to hit my time. And you know, you fall into that, that total spiral there. Are there any races specifically that you have looked at that inspire you and you're like, one day I'd love to be on the starting line of such and such an event? Yeah. I mean, I hate to even say this stuff out loud because I don't want anyone to have this expectation of me at all. But I think the first thing I ever saw that really inspired me and that it was my first time like really witnessing what ultramarathoning was like was I watched this movie on Western States and it was so incredibly inspiring. And I remember where I was. I was biking at my house in Portland, Oregon. And I was watching it on the computer. And I was like, oh my gosh, like it must have been 2013. And I was like, this is, this is cool. Like these people are incredible. And I, and I don't know, could I do that? It was kind of like when I watched Paula Radcliffe with New York City Marathon from the media truck, I kept thinking, would I, could I do that? Could I hold a pace like that for 26 miles? And then watching this movie, I thought like, could my legs move for a hundred miles? Like, could I actually do that? And that's when the seed was planted. And like I said, watching Adam run trans Rockies, which is a different event. Of course it's, it's over six days, but, um, yeah, it's just, it's fascinating to me. I'd love to see you on the start line of an ultra marathon sometime in the next few years. And then I'd love to catch up with you afterward and see what your experience was, was like, and just how the, you know, how it compared to racing, you know, on the roads where, you know, pace is such a big thing and place is such a big thing. Uh, and you're not conquering quite as many elements as an ultra race. So we'll have to check back in when you do make that leap. Um, rewinding even further, uh, 2015 big year, uh, in terms of, news, I guess. And you were sort of right in the middle of this, you know, BBC, BBC ProPublica investigation, um, about your former training group and were a whistleblower and got a lot of headlines and certainly changed your life. And I'm curious about like, how does one's life change when you become a whistleblower for something like that? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely affected my career. Um, but Also, it was like a time in my life where it kind of needed to happen. I mean, I knew that the ProPublica piece was going to be written. I knew that the BBC piece was going to happen. My initial response was that I was not interested in being a part of it. 
And um, they came to Boulder to interview Adam. And then before they flew back, they wanted to meet with me so that I felt comfortable that Adam was going to be a part of it. And um, I met with them and they were really, really nice. And it just, it started to eat at me like, this is going to happen. And I can either be on the front side of it and share my truth without all, you know, without the muddledness of it being a reaction, or I can like kind of pretend like it doesn't exist, but it's going to, everyone's going to ask me about it anyway. And so I didn't want it to hurt the USADA investigation. And I just had a lot of concerns, but honestly, I just like prayed about it a lot. And I, after a few days, I reached back out and I said, if you were willing to come back, like I would, I would sit down with you. And so I wasn't prepared for how much it would affect my life over the last um, three years, but I don't regret it because I finally felt free of, um, I don't know how to say this without being like super negative, but I felt free of like their shame. Like I had always kind of like given this one liner of why I left the group. I blamed it on having a child or whatever. And I finally was free of all of that. And for me, that was huge because I felt like I was enabling other people's behavior by staying silent about it. How important is it for other athletes to speak up about what's going on in the sport, both in terms of, you know, doping type stuff, but also other injustices that just don't get talked about because people in running just don't talk about things a lot of times. Yeah. I wish that more athletes would be public. I've had so much support, um, personally and privately. And so I don't want to say that the support, the sport hasn't supported me because the support has been awesome, but publicly it's been, it hasn't been as loud. And I think the more that people talk about stuff and talk about injustices or talk about concerns, then all of the voices collectively become louder. And it's not, it's not just one person that um, the naysayers can attack when it's a group of 20 well-established and well-liked athletes. Um, all of a sudden it's a different story. What are they going to like nitpick the lives of every single person? Like it becomes more powerful. So I just would really encourage people to, to use your voice. I don't, I'm not, saying that you should like accuse people or get in fights or anything like that. Um, but to support the people who are trying to do right for our sport and to not just don't be afraid. Cause you know what, if you speak out, I will have you back. And a lot of other people will too. Given all this, it can be really easy to be cynical about the state of the sport of track and field and competitive running right now. And I've certainly been guilty of that, but what is there to be excited about? Uh, there's a lot. I think it, it is easy to go down that road and be negative, but I think you just got to kind of, you know, is that what you want? Do you just want to view the sport through that lens? Cause then it takes all the joy out of the sport. So I think we have, um, an all time high for depth of female marathoning in the United States, which is really exciting. I think we have a lot of young women coming up on the track. We have potentially a great rivalry building between Emma Coburn and Courtney in the steeplechase, which could go on for years, which is really exciting. We have amazing, we still have amazing 1500 meter runners. Jenny Simpson's an awesome example of someone with a really long career that we can root for now as she gets, you know, and I air quote here older because I'm like a decade older than her, but we have Shelby coming up. There's just so many great storylines and so much depth. And I think that's really the, the story and what's there is to be excited about is that I think 
they were for a long time, we just had like two or three great stars and um, distance running. And now we have so many, like I always forget someone's name when I talk about the depth we have. So I think that is really exciting. I mean, we have two major wins in a year and a world championship medal. And it's just, it's a different ball game than it was even five years ago. Do you ever think about your role in that as someone who kind of helped, I guess, propel all of these other women to a higher level? Yeah. I mean, a lot, some of the time I'm just like, man, I wish I had been the one (laughs) to finally win it or whatever. But I, I, I have to just, I'm proud of my career and I went for big things and I didn't necessarily get them. You know, I went for the win in New York and Boston and ended up third both times. And, but I did kind of push, especially I pushed the half marathon forward a little bit. And I, I feel good about what I did. I feel like I have, I still have a little bit more to give, but I've, I've gotten a lot out of myself. And now that it's just time for the next generation to rise. And, um, I would like to be more a mentor and to be a cheerleader. I don't want to be out of the sport. I want to keep watching and helping in any way that I can, because that's the goal, right? Like Dina pushed the bar out and Shalane pushes the bar out. And then hopefully Molly Huddle pushes the bar out. And the goal is that we all just keep pushing it further and further. And, um, so yeah, I'm just like a super fan the last year though. (laughs) of all the exciting things that have happened. Let's go back to 2014 when you moved from Portland back to Boulder. You had ended your relationship with Nike at that time. You returned to being coached by Mark Wetmore and Heather Burrows back in Colorado. Did you feel like at that point of your career, maybe not from an athletic standpoint, but as someone who was known as like a Nike athlete, um, you know, you had been in a certain place for a long time. Did you feel like you needed to reinvent yourself at all during that time? Um, no, I definitely felt like I was a Nike athlete. Um, you know, like I, my career took off as a Nike athlete, obviously. I mean like after college. And so, but I didn't feel like I had to reinvent myself. I just felt like I really needed to be true to myself. And on the, I guess like on the business end of things, what were some of the biggest challenges when you have left a, well, the biggest company in the sport and then all of a sudden you're kind of out in this big ocean trying to figure out how you're going to swim and get yourself back to shore? I mean, the hardest thing was that I had been with Nike for 12 and a half years. So that's the only thing that I knew. And I had to, in choosing to leave that, group, uh, in choosing to leave that company, I I had to kind of leave like a lot of my friends and my support system and the people who would have helped me navigate certain things in my life weren't there anymore. Um, not because they were bad people or anything like that, but because I chose to leave this situation. So that was the hard part was feeling a little bit alone and feeling like I'm coming out of college at, in my thirties and having to establish all new relationships meet with all these different shoe companies, meet new people and try to figure it out. I mean, it was, it was stressful and it was hard. And at times I thought, oh man, maybe I just should have, maybe I just should have (laughs) stayed, you know, but I knew in my heart that it, it needed to be over. Um, and so I just had to just keep searching until I found the right thing for me. And I guess as you're 
career continues to, you know, evolve athletically and otherwise. You touched on this a second ago, but what else do you continue to do to stay involved in the sport beyond just being an athlete and being an ambassador for the brands that you work with? You know, my biggest passion now is watching others find joy in the sport and whether that's watching Desi win Boston or Shalane win New York, or if it's um, a 40 year old mother that has gotten out of shape and wants to try to lose some weight, or if it's a kid running a race for the first time, that's kind of my passion now is, is helping people find the sport. And from all levels, I would really like to move more into the youth side and sort of, um, give them information that perhaps would have been helpful for me when I was younger and help it keep, help keep it pure. And so I'm more about like bringing people together through running at this point in my life. That's kind of like my biggest passion right now. And I, I feel like it'll be that way for a long time. Speaking of youth, how into running is Colt at this point of his life? <laughs> He's not that into it. Um, he did surprise Adam and I last fall saying he wanted to join this hundred mile running club that met before school and they met twice a week and he only went once every other week and he just wanted to hit 25 miles and it took him from September until April, I think to hit 25 miles, but he did. Um, and then he begged us to run Boulder Boulder, which was an amazing and painful experience. But in general, he's really not that into running. He's all about basketball. Which isn't a bad place to be. That was my initial love. And then I decided I wanted to start running and keep in shape for basketball. And that you know, changed everything, I guess, at that point. So there's still hope for him, I guess, at this yeah, point. Yeah, he's so young. And like I, there's so many other things to do with your life. And if he decides to come into running, he can come into it in high school if he wants. You know, he'll be fine. Yeah, you definitely can't force it because it can be one of those sports that you've kind of got to grow to love it. If it's pushed upon you, it can be really easy to not enjoy. Um yeah. If you're, if you're not careful, um, you're here to so many runners, especially women, moms, uh, who feel, you know, this connection to you, whether they've met you or not, who were, or still are some of your own personal heroes. I mean, as far as like people that people would know, I think Joan Samuelson was a huge, uh, hero inspiration to me and has been so kind throughout my career, even, post Nike days just has been so kind and encouraging. And I really look up to the way she has um, continued to encourage the next generation year after year after year. And so she's been a big person for me. Um, when I was younger, Paula Radcliffe was a big inspiration to me because she really encouraged me to go after my dreams. And it was interesting. She was had run 215 when we got to know each other and she never felt threatened by me. And, and because of that, her, her security and herself, she could really encourage me and tell me training things and tell me things. And I always thought that was really cool to not be so secretive. Um, so back then she was, uh, someone I really looked up to, but honestly, I just, I'm inspired by like the, the everyday runner, you know, my entire life, once I graduated from college has been built around running. Um, I get up and every day it's like the first thing that I do and it's the focus of my day until that is done. Then I deal with the rest of life. And that is not the way life is for like 99.999% of the population. So I'm impressed by the weekend warriors and the people who are just gritting it out for the love of it, because I don't know if I could do it if 
it didn't get to be my focus. You've trained with some pretty incredible women over the course of your career, Shalane Flanagan, Jenny Simpson, Emma Coburn, to name a few. How have they pushed you to become a better athlete and person? I would say they've all pushed me in different ways. I mean, training with Shalane, I had never seen ever a woman train as hard and as much as she did. And it was totally overwhelming when I first joined the group. I mean, I think the first workout I did with her, she was going 20 miles at 615 pace and I made it eight. And I was like, oh my God, like this woman is incredible. And so she constantly held me to a different standard. Um, and I, I never even knew someone could work that hard. And so that was really cool for me to see and to experience and to be able to, once I got kind of my wheels under me, be able to train with her like that. It was kind of eye opening what your body's able to do when you give it the proper rest and stuff. So she was super, um, inspiring in that way. I think training with like Jenny Simpson, I really admire her, um, like just her grit and her never give up attitude. And like her, like she literally is just like, I will find a way. And it's crazy. She just stays calm and she finds a way. I mean, she's like, like last year wasn't having the best, necessarily the best season of her life. And yet walked with the silver medal from the world champs because she just remains steady and remains focused on what is the ultimate outcome that I want. And then I, one thing I've loved getting to know and becoming really close with Emma Coburn is that she has a a big full life outside of running. She is very, very close with her family. She's involved with her community. And that's been really cool for me to see that she has this big life that isn't running and yet she still is the world champion. So that's been really cool for me because that's more where I'm ready to be in my life is to have a life outside of it. And so it's been really cool for me to be able to see her be so successful while having all these other things in her life. And to wrap it up, building off of that, what do you hope to be, or what do you hope your legacy is that you leave on the sport of running? Oh, I don't know. Um, I used to, I used to want to be remembered as someone who was consistent, um, you know, moving up through the distances on the track and then onto the road. But now I, I hope that some things go my way in the near future. And I hope that I hope I'm remembered for fighting for, for the protection of our sport. And I hope I'm remembered, um, in a way that I don't necessarily see myself, but just as being unrelentless in protecting our sport. I think that's a good place to end it. Kara, always fun to catch up with you. And I look forward to seeing you on a starting line, hopefully sometime here soon. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks, Mario. And that's a wrap on this week's show, which was brought to you by UCAN. If you want long lasting energy without the big crash, give UCAN products a try before your next long run. UCAN is offering Morning Shakeout listeners a super cool sample pack. It includes one packet of UCAN Superstar Drink Mix, one packet of UCAN Protein Drink Mix, and one UCAN Snack Bar, all for under five bucks. Best part, it includes free shipping. Get it for yourself at generationucan.com slash morningshakeout and see what you think. My thanks to all of you for listening into this episode. If you want to support the podcast, the easiest way is by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume your audio content and leaving a rating and a review. 
It'll only take a minute, but it helps other listeners discover the show. Not to mention, it means a lot to me. I'm super appreciative for all the love and support you've thrown my way so far. Really, I'm just blown away by it all. So thank you so, so much. One final thanks from my man, John Isaac, for all his audio and editing work behind the scenes. He is the reason that this show sounds as good as it does week in and week out. So thank you, John. All right, that's all I've got for now. Until next time, I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. 